Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I have done this with a loving heart for my father, Amun. I call to attention the people who shall live in the future, who shall consider this monument that I made for my father. It was when I was sitting in the palace that I remembered my maker. My heart directed me to make for him two obelisks of electrum, their pinnacles touching the heavens. Now my mind turned this way and that, anticipating the words of the people who shall see my monument in future years and will speak of what I have done. He shall not declare what I have said to be an exaggeration. Rather, he will say, How like her it is, loyal to her father. For I am his daughter in very truth, who glorifies him and who knows what he has ordained. So that's an inscription on the temple of Amun-Ra at Ipsetsut in Thebes. The inscription, as you know, Tom, made by arguably Egypt's greatest female pharaoh, Hatshepsut. Well, arguably, I think definitely. definitely. Well, that's a big claim. Well, so we've done Cleopatra, haven't we? We have. Uh, but Cleopatra ends up a failure. I mean, she dies, commits suicide, her kingdom is conquered. Hatshepsut is a, a queen who reigns a, a millennium and a half before the time of Cleopatra, yep. the beginning of the golden age of the new kingdom. And, you know, she, she's not just um, the greatest female pharaoh. She is one of the greatest pharaohs full stop. And she's an astonishing figure. The problem with coming to terms with her, and why probably she's not as well known as Cleopatra, is that with Cleopatra, you have all kinds of brilliant details about, you know, what she was doing, what she looked like, what she was getting up to, all that kind of stuff, who she was sleeping with. Um, With Hatshepsut, we don't have that kind of detail. We don't have the equivalent of a a Plutarch or a, you know, a a, a biographer or historians like that giving us the details. The thing with Cleopatra is all the stuff about her is written by her enemies. So it's all very lurid and very, and therefore very sexy, very colourful. With Hatshepsut, there is pretty much nothing am i about there's inscriptions tom but i mean that's all we're talking about isn't it <laughs> well by the standards of of um pharaonic history there's actually quite a lot but by the standards of greek or roman history there yeah. isn't and by the standards of 20th century history there really is you know we know far more tom, about the most obscure of james callahan's cabinet ministers in the late 1970s right. yes than we do about yes. this titanic woman but, but I think that, that what you can do is to put her into the context of what is actually a very dramatic and thrilling story, okay. which is the recovery of Egypt from a, a period of incredible humiliation and prostration. So Hatshepsut is born around 1500 BC. Yep. Um, so you know, if you go back further to, to kind of 3000 BC, uh, Egypt emerges as a unitary state along the banks mm-hmm. of the Nile. From the beginning, you have these dynasties of kings, the idea that the, the monarchy lies at the heart of this kingdom, that the monarch is the kind of interface between the dimension of the gods and the dimension of, of the earthly realm. This first manifests itself through what is called the Old Kingdom. The Old Kingdom, are, the, these are building the pyramids, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Then it kind of collapses into a state of, of anarchy, lots of different kings. This is seen by the Egyptians as a terrible thing. Then they recover and establish what is called the Middle Kingdom. The Middle Kingdom again then collapses um, around 1630 BC. And the humiliation is that the northern reaches of Egypt, which include the pyramids, which include the ancient capital of Memphis, get conquered by foreigners. And these are foreigners who come from Palestine, Canaan, whatever you want to call it. And and this is an unconscionable humiliation because the Egyptians are fabulously xenophobic, fabulously conscious of themselves as being superior to all the kind of the people who surround them. And so this is this is a, a cause of immense shame. And meanwhile, in the south, uh, a people called the Kushites, who are kind of Nubian kingdom, yeah. uh, who, again, the Egyptians have periodically been going off and kicking sand in their faces and forcing unfair trade deals on them and establishing forts along the, the stretches of the Nile that runs through Kush. They also get a bit uppity and they start kind of kicking the Egyptians around. Um, so I think the, the, the parallel would be, imagine Byzantium, the Roman Empire in the 7th century. Okay. You've lost 
Rome. You've lost the western half to barbarians. And then you have the Arabs who previously had been subject to the Romans and they've nicked vast swathes of Roman provinces. And all you've got is, is Byzantium. And we know yeah. that, that the, the Byzantines ultimately don't recover, that, that the remnants of the Roman Empire in due course will be completely snuffed out. That's kind of the situation that Egypt is facing in the Hyksos period, because you have the Hyksos to the north, these Asiatic peoples, you have uh, the Kushites to the south, and you have the remnants of the Egyptian state in what comes to be called Thebes, uh, what's mm-hmm. now Luxor. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee that they're necessarily going to recover, but they do, thanks to the emergence of a succession of remarkable kings and of remarkable queens. And that's what's so fascinating about it. So sometimes, Tom, we get some um, comments from our listeners. So actually some from quite sort of long-standing listeners, and they say, we wish you could do more powerful women, women with, with agency, women who aren't just being you know kicked around by men or seen through men's eyes and so on. And you could argue, couldn't you, that Hatshepsut, who we'll come to after we've done the context, that she's one of the, the most outstanding early examples Absolutely, yes. Of a, of a woman with real imperial agency. Well, she, she, her, her name literally means the foremost of noble women. And I guess yeah. that that's a very accurate description. I mean, she, she is incredibly formidable and able leader. I mean, it is obviously very, very unusual for women to rule. The Egyptians don't have a word for queen. Right. All, all, all women are defined in terms of their relationship to the king. So the mother of the king, the wife of the king, whatever. There had been one woman who had ruled as king at the end of the Middle Kingdom. But otherwise, the idea that a woman could rule as king was obviously, you know, it it, it generated all kinds of tensions. So Hatshepsut, in that sense, is is a real innovator. But she's not coming from nowhere. Right. And her forebears, so the succession of extraordinary warrior pharaohs who, first of all, they, they conquer the territory that's lost, uh, and they then expand northwards into um, into the Near East and southwards back into Kush. So they are very formidable militarist in the classic sense of, of of a male pharaoh. But they are surrounded by incredibly formidable women who often serve as regents. Those right. are the two traditions that that Hatshepsut is drawing on. The idea that Egypt is a great power, but also this idea that that women do absolutely have agency in this period. Right. Okay, so I know you want to talk a little bit about the context, don't you? About the sort of the um, the sort of the the geographical, political, diplomatic context for all this, because you were saying that we are what we are at about six hundred fifteen hundred years before the birth of Christ. Yeah. So Greece and Rome are nothing. Yeah. And Egypt has been through this terrible sort of um, you know, it's been relegated basically. Well, it's it's struggling to have, it, it's yes, it's been it's been relegated to the leagues and it's struggling to avoid going into receivership. It's West Bromwich Albion. You know, okay. it's 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 a constant threat. And then you it comes back, Egypt comes back. So the Hyksos, who are these Asiatic kings who have established themselves in the north of Egypt, obviously they they start to adopt Egyptian customs and practices, but they always remain self-consciously foreign. Mm-hmm. They, they they have temples to, to their own gods. They practice their own fashions. Um, the reason that they've been so successful is that they have a new military weapon, namely the chariot. And it, it takes time for the Egyptians to adopt that. But in due right. course of, you know, the, the famous image of Tutankhamun in his chariot or Ramesses the Great, whatever, the chariot will become a kind of defining emblem of the pharaoh. And so it takes time for the Egyptians down in Thebes to kind of develop that. But they do. They start to adopt Hyksos weapons, which are are much more kind of formidable than the traditional Egyptian weaponry. And by, well, by the kind of the 1540s, they're starting to to launch attacks northwards. So there's one king who seems to be quite successful. Then he he gets very brutally killed in battle. The, the autopsy on him is, is horrible. The arms and hands were left in the agonized attitude into which they had been thrown in the death spasms following the murderous attack, the evidence of which is so clearly impressed on the battered face and skull. So Tom, where's, where's that from? Like, who wrote that down? So that's the auto, that's the autopsist who does it, who, who look, is looking at this guy, King's mummy. Oh, right. So, so Sorry, the body yeah. has yeah. been brought back from the battle and yeah. he's, you know, it's, it's also hurried that, that they can't kind of even out the, the limbs. They just mummify him and chuck him in his grave because right. they're, they're in, you know, the exigencies of war being what they are. But that, that king's son, a guy called Camoes, um, he's much more successful. So he, he boasts that his army goes like a great blast of fire, that he approaches the, the, the Hyksos king in his palace and makes wine from the Hyksos king's 
vines and drinks it before his his palace and basically you're having the sense there that that things are starting to tick up yeah for, for the egyptians and um Camos is succeeded by a bloke called Amos, who might be either his son or his brother. Yeah. And it's absolutely typical <laughs> of the state of our knowledge that, that, you know, Egyptologists devote entire books to arguing over these kind of details. I was just trying to work out a way in which, is it possible he could be both? But I don't think it is. <laughs> Well, there's, well, a, there's a bit well, of intermarriage, isn't there? There's a bit well, of the sort of Ptolemy I, 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 style. Yes, absolutely. And uh, th- there is indeed a, quite a lot of intermarriage, partly because, uh, and, and it's chiefly down to Amos, actually, this extraordinary king who does this. He absolutely centers the idea of the king and his family as being at the heart of the state. And he's able to do that because it's Amos who finally expels the Hyksos from Egypt. So he storms their palaces and their fortresses in the north, and he then pursues them through Sinai into into Canaan, and he he captures all kinds of fortresses. So he renames the great fortress of Gaza the town that Pharaoh seized, which is very descriptive. Um, That's what it says on the tin. (laughs) And then he goes southwards and he um, he conquers Cush, and Cush is this is very important because Cush produces lots of gold, and Amos basically is the model of a great conqueror. And so because of that, he can legitimately portray himself and his family as being absolutely the, you know, the beating heart of this newly recreated great yeah. power that is Egypt. And so therefore it, it is important for him to basically keep things within the family. Yeah. So that, you know, he marries his sister. So his sister is Ahotep. Is that right? No. Ahotep is his mother. Okay. So Ahotep is, is a very, very big cheese. So she, okay. she, in the best traditions of the new kingdom, incredibly boastful. So she give praise to the lady of the land. She, you know, this is written on her, one of her inscriptions, the mistress of the shores of Haunebet, whose reputation is high over every foreign land, who governs the masses, the wise one who guards over Egypt. And interestingly, you said Greece and Rome, you know, not on the scene, but there is a theory that Haunebet is, um, uh, it might be Crete, oh. um, because she is buried with a Cretan axe and a Cretan dagger. Right. So uh, there's a sense that, you know, at the foreign court, they're interested in looking abroad and adopting foreign fashions. So that would be that would be Minoan, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. So that would be Minoan. Yeah. 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 So Ahotep is, is the, the mother and she had ruled actually as regent for Amos. Yeah. A- Amos marries his sister, who infuriatingly is also called Ahmos. Oh, yes. Ahmos right. Nefertari. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. it's not, you know, it's not enough that... <laughs> The brothers and sisters are marrying, but they're actually called the same. So it, it's yeah. potentially incredibly confusing. But she also, so, so, um, again, when the male Ahmos, um, <laughs> dies, the female Ahmos, let's call her Ahmos Nefertari. That's her, her, her full name. Right. She, uh, she then rules as regent for their son, who's a young boy called Amenhotep. And so she, she effectively is, you know, she, she doesn't call herself the king. But she is ruling in the place of the king. But that's why it's interesting, right? That she rules in the place, but she doesn't. Yeah. Is that because at that point, there have ne- you know, you said there had been a uh, one female king. I don't want to say queen because that implies no, she's a not consort. a queen. So that's that, yeah. yeah. So there'd been one female king back in the sort of mists of time. But about 200 years before. Okay. So not in the midst of time. So, so do people, you know, well, I mean, depends. In how, the memory, yeah. in people's memory. Do people yeah. remember that? Would you say? I don't think it's hugely, it's not a huge thing. I mean, uh, they're not chatting about it no, in the pubs not, of, um, no, they're not. In the pubs of Thebes. I mean, Hatchets, of course, in due course, will make quite a big thing of it, but right. I don't think it's particularly. So present. when, when, when Armos male dies and Armos female comes in as regent, yeah. it doesn't occur to her and nobody is saying, Oh, why don't you take the throne? It's just not an option. No, but so you've had for two successive generations, you've had women ruling as regents for underage kings. Right. So you've had Ahotep yeah. ruling for Ahmos, and then you've yeah. had Ahmos Nefertari ruling for their son, Amenhotep. And I think that that kind of beds down the idea that women, are, you know, are very, very able to govern Egypt. Yeah. Um, but what it doesn't do is establish the idea that a woman can rule as king. There always has to be somebody that she's standing behind, basically. Yeah, basically. But Amos Nefertari is is incredibly effective, and it's during her regency and the rule of her son Amenhotep that that you start to get a very significant development at Thebes. So, so Thebes is on the east bank of the Nile, which is seen as the land of the living, and on the right. western bank, the land of the dead, because that's where the sun sets. 
they start to, to, to build mortuary temples, uh, temples that are, are being raised to the memory of, of, of the kings. And very possibly, this is when um, what will become the Valley of the Kings right. start to be yeah. respected. So this idea that you have the land of the living, which will become the great temple of Karnak uh, on, on the right side and on the left side, you have this dimension of the dead. This is uh, Akmos Nefertari is presiding over that. And, and this, these people are not pyramid builders, are they? I mean, no. people who think that the, we conflate all ancient Egypt into one sort of mass. The pyramids were, 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 were centuries and centuries before. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and they've basically twigged the fact that if you don't want to have your, you know, your treasure nicked from your from your tomb, kind of advertising it with a huge pyramid is is yep. not a sensible way to do that. And in due course, the mortuary temples of which Hatshepsut will be the most famous is built on one side of this mountain ridge, and then the Valley of the Kings lies in the discreetly in the valley behind it. Right. So that's that's going on with um, Akmos Nefertari as regent and her son Amenhotep. But the problem is the incest. Because uh, incest is not good, is it, for fertility? You will know that, your, your fondness for science and genetics. <laughs> you will know that. I don't know where, I wonder where you were going with that. <laughs> no, no, it's not your, your knowledge of genetics. So, so basically, Amenhotep, Amenhotep has no children, has no sons. Right. Yeah. And so this I'm is, still reeling from this accusation, I have to say. And so this is a problem. Uh, because they yeah. need a king. And so he looks around and he, he adopts Dominic. Behave yourself. Yeah. He adopts um, <laughs> someone who who seems to have been a, a distant relative, and was definitely yeah. the kind of the big military man, the most trusted lieutenant at the court. Who is a guy called Thutmose, right? Yes. And listeners will be delighted to know that there are an enormous number of people called Thutmose in this story. So again, you just need to. <laughs> That's always yeah, good. You just need to keep a handle. So this is Thutmose the first. Okay, and he is. An absolutely tremendous lad. He's a military man. He is a military man who just rampages around. His nickname is the Panther. The Panther. Yes, because he pounces and savages and kills. Yeah, but I think of a Panther as kind of elusive and um, quiet, stealthy. He's none of those things. If he's boozing and shouting, well, he's he's a loud Panther. Okay. Okay. He, he, he's a Panther who likes a drink. That's okay. All right. Like that. I'm trying to think of a modern analogy and I, and I can't. But. Well, he's, so he's incredibly successful. Yeah. And the measure of success is for a pharaoh basically at this point seems to be military. Yeah. So course. it's pretty much come a tradition that you, you become pharaoh and then you go roaring off north and you, you know, you beat up all the people in Canaan, which he does very successfully. Yeah. And uh, also that you, you go south and you attack the Kushites. And Thutmose I does very, very well against the Kushites. So he captures their capital, a place called Kerma. Um, he sacks and burns it. He reaches this great rock of quartz. It's kind of, you know, incredibly shiny kind of uh, mineral rock. Right. Which has been very holy to the Kushites. And they put up all kinds of religious inscriptions. And he erases the lot and puts up an enormous kind of self-glorifying inscription to himself. He founds forts all along the line of the Nile, which have traditional Egyptian names like no one dares confront him and I am brilliant and <laughs> <laughs> screw you Kushites, um, right. you know, all these kind of names. And he, he just leaves inscriptions everywhere boasting about, you know, how, how brilliantly he's done. So there is not yeah. a single Nubian left. Their bowmen have fallen amid the slaughter and lies corpses across their native land. Their entrails drench the valleys. Blood pours in torrents from their mouths. Um, he uh, he takes the body of the Nubian king, who he's killed, the Kushite king, and he lashes it to the, the prow of his ship as he sails back up um, the uh, back back up the Nile, head head down, and so yeah. the body slowly rotting, getting eaten by flies. It's tremendous, oh, wow. tremendous display. Yeah. And then he goes right north and he he attacks a, a kingdom called the uh, the kingdom of the Mitanni, which is um, a kind of aspirant great power in northern Syria, northern Iraq, southern what's now southern Turkey. Wins a great battle there, erects an inscription, and excels himself there by going on an elephant hunt. So you can see that he he. You know, he's, he's a big hitter. He is. I like him, Tom. I'd, I'd, well, I, won't, I won't hide it. So Thutmose I, he is the father of Hatshepsut. Right. And Hatshepsut is devoted to him. And one of the reasons for this, perhaps, is that when he went on his expedition into Kush, he took Hatshepsut, who at this point must have been quite a young girl, with him. So she has seen Daddy in action. She has seen the greatness of the Egyptian army. She has seen what it is to be a mighty king, a mighty ruler. 
And, you know, these are lessons that she seems to have taken in. And Hatshepsut is the daughter of Thutmose's principal wife. So uh, this is a queen who is of royal descent. Thutmose I has a, a son by a lesser wife, also called Thutmose. And so when he dies, Thutmose II succeeds and marries Hatshepsut. Right. But there is a power imbalance there because Hatshepsut's line of descent is much more regal than Thutmose II's. But on the other hand, he is a man, so he presumably man. he commands automatic deference in a way that she perhaps doesn't from the men, the other men, the soldiers, the courtiers, whatever. But is blood all? I mean, well, I suppose that's the... It, it's clearly more important that a man rules than a woman, which is why, despite yeah. the fact that Hatshepsut's line of descent is, is more prestigious, yeah. she is the wife of the king. So to that extent, she is a conventional figure. But she's a powerful figure. She's, she's, yeah. she's a big player. And Thutmose II, by contrast, seems to have been a bit of a weed. Right. I think he's quite young to begin with. There's confusion as to exactly how long he reigned. Some, some scholars say three years, some say 13 years. But he doesn't seem to have had a great military track record. The expeditions to go and beat up the Kushites, he doesn't seem to have led them in person. Right. So Thutmose II and Hatshepsut, they do have a child, but it's a daughter, Neferareri. So she is obviously not in line to succeed. Thutmose II has also had a son, inevitably called Thutmose, by yeah. a, a lesser wife. And so he's kind of in pole position to succeed. And when he dies, by this point, Hatshepsut is probably late teens, maybe even early 20s. And so she steps in, in the role as regent. And that's a conventional thing. You know, there's nothing too out of the ordinary. This has happened kind of two generations before her. But it's what happens next that really is extraordinary Ooh. and that, that enables Hatshepsut to be commemorated as one of the most remarkable rulers who's ever lived. And Crikey, that's a, do you think that's we should a, take a break at this point? I think on that enormous claim, Tom, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that enormous claim, we'll take a break and we will return for Tom Holland to justify why Hatshepsut is one of the greatest rulers who has ever lived. So join us after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me. So I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. There was no one more beautiful. Her splendor and her appearance were divine. She was a maiden, exquisite and blooming. Now, that is a description of, for Tom Holland, one of the greatest of all world leaders in history, the Egyptian pharaoh Hatshepsut, 
And that description, Tom, was written by Hatshepsut herself. <laughs> well, modesty wasn't yeah wasn't re- wasn't really accounted a virtue in Egypt. It's like talking to the presenters of the rest is history about their own podcast, isn't it? <laughs> it it's the kind of thing that one of them might write in the Daily Mail. <laughs> it is indeed about himself. <laughs> it is indeed. Yes. And it's kind of interesting because it it does draw attention to the way in which one of the problems with getting a handle on the personalities of figures from ancient Egyptian history is that the way that they're portrayed tends to be done in terms of stereotype and, uh, you know, difficult to know whether this is actually an accurate description of her. So based on the mummies uh, of, of her family, they all seem to have been quite short you know, slight kind of Napoleonic quality to them. (laughs) It's been argued on the basis of analysis of their portraits that they seem to have had quite big noses. Right. So so it has been argued that this was, and definitely, we we don't definitely have Hatshepsut's mummy. So we we don't, can't use that as evidence. But quite a lot of uh, her relatives seem to have had buck teeth. I, this is harsh, though, isn't it? I mean, if all <laughs> if all trace of you was was lost to posterity, and we were extrapolating from the mummies of your <laughs> of your cousins or something, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And adding adding to the general yeah. vibe uh, is the uh, the thesis that Joyce Tardsley in her brilliant book Hatchets of the Female Pharaoh. Um, she advances the the idea that Hatchetsut might well have been bald. Bald? Well, because they did. They shaved their heads, men okay. and women. Okay. And, you know, that's yeah. why they wore the wigs. Right. So, um, so she might be, have been small, big nose with buck teeth and bald. Right. <laughs> but apart from that, very hot. What did she say of herself? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, there's no one more so, beautiful. Her splendor <laughs> and her appearance were divine. I, I go with that, actually, Tom. Yeah. Well, I, she's clearly a woman of immense charisma. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Just before we get into her reign, yeah. and since you you suggested that we use her own description of herself, it's a really good way to actually talk about what do how do we know anything about any of these people? Is it all from hieroglyphic inscriptions? And we are desperately trying to sort of we're piling conjecture on on conjecture, basically. Yeah. Well, I remember you saying about Tudor when we did Lady Jane Grey and saying that what was it that she she walked past a bush or something <laughs> Catherine Howard walked past yeah. a bush or something the mother of English gardening great yeah. piles <laughs> so so there is a slight element of that uh and, and what adds to the complication of course is that often we don't even you know we can't even be certain that you know a wife is a sister what sister right. might be a wife or I mean all kinds of complications they all have the same names it, it is very very difficult but with Hapshetsut I think because she's so unusual uh, and what she yeah. does is so unusual the strains that exist between the way that kings are conventionally portrayed and the actual reality is sufficiently strong that you can kind of work out what she's doing. I mean, that's what that's what makes her so interesting. So you ended the, the first half on a bit of a cliffhanger because you said she was about she was poised to do something absolutely yeah. extraordinary. And I guess from her actions, we can divine a little bit of her character. So what is it that she does that is so remarkable? So so her yeah. husband stroke half brother has died and has left a son who is not descended from the principal queen. So is therefore of lesser rank than Hatshepsut herself, discounting the, the, you know, his, his gender. Yeah. Um, and he's a very small baby. And from the beginning, Hatshepsut acknowledges him as a king. And her own role yeah. is to begin with, it seems that of a regent. Um, so the role of Thutmose, who, who will come, go on to become Thutmose the third. There are really two alternatives as to what is happening there. Either Hatshepsut is ruling as regent because she has no choice, because Thutmose is, is the only obvious, you know, Thutmose III is the only candidate. Yeah. So she's making the best of a bad job. But it's possible to see it in another light, which is that she wants to rule. She feels she has the right to rule. She's able, she's competent, she has the right uh, blood in her veins. And therefore she has fixed on this little baby as a kind of, a screen, a patsy, uh, someone who can, you know, she, she can use him as a front and get all the reins of power in her hands. So both alternatives are possible. And I would guess the latter is, you know, it could be both to a degree. I mean, we can't know. Yeah, she might have started it as an expedient. And then after a few months or years thought, you know what, I'm actually really good at this. 
Yeah, so we don't know we don't know whether she aims right from the beginning to establish herself as king. Yeah. But it it's evident that what she is doing is incrementally kind of moving herself towards the position where she can be hailed as king. To begin with, she is not only regent, she is also the wife of Amun. And Amun is the king of the gods. Initially, he was a very unimportant regional god based in, in Thebes. But because he is the, the patron deity of this great warrior dynasty that has emerged and conquered the whole of Egypt and, and, and made themselves kings of, of, of the whole of Egypt, he gets enshrined as the supreme god. And so his role gets blurred with the traditional king of the gods, Ray, so Amun Ray. Oh, yeah, exactly. So they, they become combined, don't they, effectively? Yeah. And so you have this great temple, what you know, what's now Karnak. Anyone who's been to Luxor will have seen it. It's kind of one of the, I mean, probably absolutely up there as one of the great tourist sites of the world. I mean, it's absolutely stupefying kind of conglomeration of of shrines and obelisks and pillars and all kinds of things. And it gets built over the course of the 18th dynasty. Hatshepsut, in her role as wife of Amun, is basically with the chief of priest of the Amun. I mean, she she is in charge of that. And it's so rich and it's so, dare I say, sacral. That immediately she has an incredible degree of power there, but it's not enough. She wants more. So at some point, maybe five, six, seven years into her her regency, she takes on a name that identifies her as as a male king. So every every Egyptian king takes on what's called a throne name, yep. and Hatshepsut takes on the name of Mart Kare. So Mart is it's kind of truth, order, the idea that everything is as it should be. It's kind of balance, isn't it? Mart? Yes, yeah. balance. Um, and uh, the car is the soul and Ray is the king of the gods. Yeah. So truth is the soul of Ray. So that's a, a really significant development. And then seven years into the Regency, again, perhaps a little bit before that, suddenly she's presenting herself as a king. So the crowns, the scepters, the trappings, the, the sort of... The beard, the false beard. Yeah. The, the, the whole works. So the false beard, just a quick interjection on the false beard, because that is one of the things that people who know a tiny bit about this will know. The false beard is not that she is passing herself off as a man. The f- false beards, because they're common, aren't they, among for Egyptian kings, that they will wear these things? A- absolutely. So a, a, a king is a living symbol. And so you're portrayed in absolutely set ways. And when you manifest yourself in the court or before the people, you are dressed as a symbol, as a symbol of kingship. And that's what Hatshepsut is doing. She wants to conform to every kind of stereotype that is going. The fact that she's a woman in that sense is irrelevant because all kings are to an extent playing a role. The symbolism is, is more important than the reality. So, so essentially the reason that the Egyptians are willing to accept her as king seems to be because, precisely because the symbol is more important than the reality. Yeah. That's what enables her to do it. But still, she's kind of, you know, no one has, has really done it in quite the way that she does it. And she does it really, really brilliantly. So what she does to establish her legitimacy is, is that she writes her erstwhile husband, half-brother, Thutmose II out of the story. You know, this kind of wimp who just gets kind of jettisoned. So it appears that she's just got it directly from her father. Basically. Exactly. But but then the question is, who is her father? And that inscription that you read at the beginning, right at the start of the episode. Yeah. You know, she's she's calling Amun, the great god, the yes. king of the gods, yeah. her father. And so what she does is she, she promulgates the idea that Amun appeared to her mother in the guise of, of Thutmose I. And the, uh, you know, full-on descriptions of Amun's erect penis. Nice. Um, he, he comes bearing the scent of perfumes and fragrance and as the great tide of his desire spills right. and, and seeds, uh, seeds um, Hatshepsut's mother, so the scent of perfume floods the whole palace. It's a bit like the arrival of the milk tray man. <laughs> exactly so. Exactly so. But of course, what it's not like is is like the kind of the Christian idea of the Virgin Mary mm-hmm. becoming yeah. pregnant. Uh, this is a, this is a full on sex. But it's a little bit like uh, the sort of Greek myths. Yes, know. it is a little bit like that. I was just thinking about Alexander the Great. He claimed that he was not the son of Philip II, yeah. but the son of Zeus. So this is a itself is a formula, right? I mean, absolutely. And Alexander kind of you know he, he claims to be the son of Ammon as well. Yes. Yeah. So that idea that earthly kings 
aren't really your father. But but it's it's complicated because at the same time, Hatshepsut is obviously devoted to Thutmose I. So the fact that she's kind of basically saying that Amun cuckolded Thutmose doesn't stop her from very much being, you know, her father's daughter. Right. Yeah. Very much daddy's girl. And so it's this idea that Amun has not only fathered her, but has chosen her as king. And so you get all these freezes in, in the great temple that, that Hatshepsut will have built for her on, on the Western side, her great mortuary temple that show her being uh, born and show her being presented to the gods. And what's interesting is that when she's being presented to the gods as a kind of little baby, she, she's clearly male. She has, she has a kind of male genitalia. And is that because they, that's the formula and they don't want to break from the formula? I mean, she's not trying to claim that she's a boy, obviously. No, she's not. Um, so, you know, people, people had all kinds of fun with this. So Freudians were, were fascinated right. by this. Yeah. You know, you know, daddy issues, all this kind of stuff. And I guess you might, you know, we might be tempted now when gender fluidity is such a, a say a she was non-binary to say, yeah. you know, was she, was she yeah. non-binary? Uh, I, I think that would be a wholly anachronistic way of reading it. What she's, what she's doing is making play with the fact that to a degree to be a king is to play a symbolic role. Yeah. But clearly this is imposing tensions. It does impose strains because it's obvious that, you know, she's not a man and she's not pretending to be a man. Um, and so that's why sometimes she's portrayed as a woman. Sometimes she's portrayed as a man. What she does very interestingly is to give some of her predecessors female epithets. So her father, you know, who we've described as an absolute lad, he, he is described in, in inscriptions put up by Hatshepsut as the perfect goddess. So that idea that, you know, if, if a woman can be, play a man's role, yeah. kings have, are also can play the, 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 the role of a goddess. I mean, you can completely understand why that, that works for her because it, to, to imply this sort of shifting from one to the other legitimizes her yeah. unprecedented place. I mean, it's not completely unprecedented, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think also it it kind of draws attention to the way in which she is she is um, casting herself as a god, and the idea that male and female roles in the dimension of the heaven are less secure than they are on earth is also a part yeah. of it. So she's kind of laying claim to that. But it's clear that that there's a problem for people don't quite know what to call her. Right. So it's in this period that her her advisors start to come up with this circumlocution. So they start to call her after where she lives, i.e. The great house. The palace, the yeah. great house, which is, you know, transliterated is Pharaoh, is what a Pharaoh is. So before that, people weren't using the word Pharaoh to refer to the kings. They used it to refer to the building. I'm not absolutely sure about that. And if there are any expert Egyptologists listening, perhaps they could let us know. But my understanding is, is that it's definitely from Hatshepsut's time that that phrase starts to come in. So it's equivalent of, you know, the White House or the palace. We don't call Joe Biden the White House, but I suppose it's plausible that in the long, I mean, we do use it as a... Yeah, but you say the White House says. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The palace denies this. The Elysee's position is yes, Downing Street. Kind of Downing Street are telling us that, yeah, people do say that. And no doubt yeah. to our successors, that will seem ludicrous and bizarre, just as calling somebody the great house does to us. So it works. It clearly works. Hatshepsut rules for 20 years and her, her reign is, is incredibly successful. So she, she launches the traditional campaigns against Kush. It's possible that she went in person. There are inscriptions that, um, record the hands of, of, uh, slaughtered Kushites being cut off. They would cut off either hands or penises and make great piles and count them okay. to find out how many had been slaughtered. And, and, and these, there's an inscription describing these being presented to her. So it may be that she, that, that she did take part in a, an actual campaign. One of those images is definitely better than the other. <laughs> and, and one of those images is not one I care to think about too much. No. Well, and, and, and <laughs> you know, again, the idea of uh, severed penises being presented to uh, to a female king. Yeah. It's no wonder the Freudians have enjoyed it. And the other thing, of course, that Freudians would enjoy is uh, her architectural extravaganzas. So in Karnak, um, she's, she's a great sponsor of buildings there. And she, uh, she has huge twin obelisks, yeah. which at the time were, were the largest, um, ever erected, um, put at the entrance to the temple. <laughs> and it's kind of sheathed in gold. They're two obelisks of Electrum, their pinnacles touching the heavens. That's what she says in the inscription. And again, a, a Freudian would yeah. kind of 
perhaps enjoy that. But her most famous building is the building that I already alluded to, her mortuary temple, which gets built on the, the West Bank of the Nile. And it's stunningly beautiful. Have you been to, have you I've seen I've never it? been, Tom. Never been to Egypt. Have you been? You, you clearly have. I have. I, yes, I've been several times. And, and her mortuary temple, which isn't just her mortuary temple. So it's also a mortuary temple for her father. So again, you know, daddy is there, but it's also full of different temples and shrines to the various gods, including Amun, all kinds of people like that. It's, uh, it, it was called by Hatshepsut, Jessa Jessaru, which is, uh, the Holy of Holies. And it is, if you imagine a Greek temple designed by Le Corbusier, yeah. the great modernist architect, there is something modernist about it. There is something Greek about it. And there is something Egyptian about it. And it's a, a very unique, distinctive building. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely one of the great buildings of ancient Egypt. It's maybe one of the great buildings of, you know, in, in the entire world. It's absolutely stunning. And it's kind of arranged as a series of terraces with, with the cliff as as the kind of backdrop. Right. Um, and this cliff on the other side is where the Valley of the Kings is. So her, her tomb is on that side. The mortuary temple is on, on the side that is facing the Nile. Um, and actually, do you know what the, the path is that joins them? I don't, Tom. It's, it's, uh, it's called Agatha Christie's path. Oh. Because it's a path that, that features in uh, Death on the, Nile. The, the novel. No, it's, um, it features in Death Comes as the End, which oh, is the, the, no, the novel that she set in ancient, ancient Egypt. Egypt. Which isn't yeah. very good, actually, I don't think. But anyway, let's... <laughs> no, but it's nice to know that, you know, there's an Agatha Christie link. Definitely. And so from, from the point of view of um, making sense of Hatshepsut's life, the great thing about this, this huge temple is that there are a beautiful exquisitely carved and painted scenes from her life. So it's here that we get the portrait of her divine birth, um, her election by the gods. There are scenes showing her obelisks being transported. And most famously, there is the illustration of an expedition that she sent out to a land called Punt. Ah, right. Yeah. And Punt seems to, it's a kind of simultaneously a mythical land and a land that seems actually to have existed. So perhaps the Horn of Africa, I think is, is, yeah the most popular location for it and it shows uh all kinds of um wonderful treasures being brought back so wild animals maybe uh rhinoceros maybe giraffes and so it shows all kinds of 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 wonderful things being brought back by this expedition that hatchet sort of sent so exotic plants and these plants are then planted on her mortuary temple um ebony ivory perfumes so the, the perfumes when amun impregnates Hatshepsut's mother are described as having come from Punt. Right. Know, they, that's how beautiful they are. And also there are wonderful scenes of Punt. So there's a house on stilts with a kind of turtle floating underneath it, swimming underneath it. And most famously of all, they show the queen of Punt, who it is fair to describe as a woman of size. <laughs> She's very, very large. Right. Uh, um, and uh, this is all kind of showing Hatshepsut as able to construct stunning architecture and to commission vast kind of trading expeditions. So this is, you know, this is the model of what it is to be a great queen. But in terms of the real Hatshepsut, what's going on? What, what are the dynamics of the court? There is one intriguing clue that is to be found very, very discreetly placed within um, this mortuary temple, which is the portrayal of someone who is not royal, a man called Senenmut. And Senenmut is the great right-hand man. So he's the architect and a tutor. And, and what else? Tutor, tutor to the Hatshepsut's daughter, um, overseer of the audience chamber, steward of the queen's estates, steward of Amun, overseer of all the king's works, responsible for the, the, for the funerary, for the mortuary temple, responsible for the obelisks. And he has himself portrayed in the upper sanctuary you know, which is kind of unheard of. Yeah. He's, this is the most sacred part of the temple. So very, very strange. And we have details of his life also from two enormous tombs that he built for himself, which he portrays itself very much as a kind of rags to riches story. And there are actually, you know, there are 26 surviving statues of him. Is he, is he possibly, are, are they more than friends, Tom? Well, so this is, this is the great question. Yeah. So there was, a, there was, um, an ostracon, a kind of sh a, a shard of pottery found in the great workman's village where the workmen who, who labored on the mortuary temples and in the Valley of the Kings lived. And it shows what seems to be a man having sex with a woman wearing a pharaoh's headdress. Right. And it's often been suggested that this might be a kind of scurrilous portrayal of Senenmut and Hapchetsut. I mean, we don't know for sure. It might be, it might not be. But obviously, 
<laughs> there, there are all kinds of questions around that. So one of the things that's intriguing about Senenmut is that he doesn't seem to have had a wife, which is incredibly unusual. I mean, unheard of right. for a prominent Egyptian not to have had a wife. Uh, it has been suggested that perhaps this is a bit like the Earl of Leicester or the Earl of Essex with Elizabeth I kind of playing mm. down the fact that they're married. You know, there would be nothing to stop Hatshepsut having a relationship with him if, if, if she'd wanted. But would that not have meant that she was no longer the king? Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't, but it might have compromised right. her role. As with Elizabeth I mean, Essentially, she yeah. has to, she, 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 yes, she cannot afford to marry. So there is a kind of, you know, intriguing Elizabeth I parallel there. And the other thing that complicates it is that um, Senenmut doesn't seem to have been buried in either of his tombs. So we, again, we don't know what happened there. Was he assassinated? Was he disgraced? And this is the kind of the frustration of Egyptian history is that you get the scent of all these kind of extraordinary narratives, but not enough evidence. And some listeners might say, oh gosh, typical blokes, they can't read about a powerful woman having a, you know, an, an impressive male right hand without imagining that they're in bed together. So it's also possible that there's, there's nothing to, there's no mystery. Absolutely yeah. possible. Because I think, I think it's clear that the partnership was one that was founded on a kind of shared sense of what was possible for a king yeah. to do. I mean, the extraordinary architecture of Hatshepsut's funerary temple is evident in other temples that she either restored or developed. So she also, uh, you know, sponsors lots of buildings in Karnak. And these are very, very innovative, very kind of sophisticated, novel, it must have come from Hatshepsut, the inspiration for this. Yeah. But she needed someone to do it for her. And I clearly it's Senenmut who's doing that. So there is clearly a kind of mixing of, you know, a meeting of minds there. Yeah. Uh, he's a very, very able man. She's a very, very able woman. And together they create these remarkable monuments. But we don't know yeah. what happens to him. And also the other thing that we don't know is the exact circumstances of how she is remembered when she dies. She seems to have died naturally maybe late 30s, 40s, which was, you know, a ripe old age for Egyptians. And she is succeeded by the young Thutmose III. So he's been waiting patiently all this time. He's been waiting very, very patiently. And what happens when Hatshepsut dies is that the people in Canaan who've been subject to Egypt immediately rise in revolt, which I think is an incredibly telling tribute to Hatshepsut's renown, yeah. that it's felt, you know, that the this woman dies and immediately, you know, succeeded by, by her male heir. And it's assumed by the people in Canaan that this is an opportunity for them to rise up in revolt. So it's a tribute to her renown. Um, very bad mistake on their part, however, because Thutmose III will prove himself to be perhaps the, the most able military leader in the whole of Egyptian yeah. history. He goes bombing off. I mean, he absolutely flattens them. He wins a great battle at Megiddo. Armageddon, as it will in due course become. And he rules for 33 years, absolutely glorious reign, tremendous success. And at some point, an attempt is made to deface Hatshepsut's monuments. That's interesting. So we, we earlier, we did one on Akhenaten and, and this happened to him, a very, very kind of total damnatio memoriae attempt to erase his memory, wipe out his name. And it's been a very popular theory that this is an expression of Thutmose III's resentment against his aunt. But the complication with that is that, um, well, firstly, I mean, it would have been very easy for him to stage a coup. He's a young man. He's in charge of the army. He could easily have toppled his aunt. He doesn't seem to have done I mean, he didn't do that. He lets her die of natural causes. Yeah. And the second thing is that this seems to have happened. This, this attempt to erase uh, Hatshepsut from the, from the record seems to have happened several decades after her death. Right. And so the likeliest theory, I think, is that what is being targeted isn't Hatshepsut herself, but the memory of the way in which she'd made herself king. And so it seems to have been a, a kind of an, an attempt to establish the fact that women could not rule as kings. Is that because the success, his own heir is threatened by a woman? I think probably, yes. I mean, it's basically, it's trying to put, it's trying to ensure that women play the role of regents, yeah. but not of kings. And you do have, obviously, very powerful female figures that follow through the 18th dynasty, of whom Nefertiti is the most famous. Yeah. And there has been a thesis that she did actually rule as, as king, but unlikely. Um, so essentially, that seems to have been the, the thing. And it, and it seems to have been pretty cursory, because otherwise we wouldn't know about Hatshepsut. We do have her inscriptions. And a kind of memory was preserved. So her name wasn't preserved in the king lists, but 
she wasn't completely erased from historical memory in the way that Akhenaten was. Right. So historians didn't have to kind of recover her. They kind of did. She, it wasn't remembered that she'd been a woman. So she's kind of commemorated as a man. Oh, right. Greggy. Yeah. Uh, so the, the discovery that she was a woman was kind of, you know, it, was an, it, it wasn't quite an excitement on the level of discovering Akhenaten yeah. and Tutankhamun, but it was pretty exciting. And that's why she's remembered, I think. Well, also, doesn't, I mean, she must really endear herself to feminist historians and historians, as you were saying, of gender. People who write about gender in ancient Egypt must be all over her. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, she's a, she's a fascinating figure, The um, rather in the way that Elizabeth I is, I yes. guess. You know, the tension between her role and her gender yeah. is obviously fascinating. And the fact that she was so successful with it means that she's all the more a kind of intriguing subject of study. And of course, you know, fashions in this change so, yeah. so quickly. The, the, the tone that was adopted when she was first discovered, because the histories were mainly being written by men, fabulously sexist. Then you have kind of Freudianism. Then you have the effect of, of feminism in, c- kicking in in the 70s. Now I, I'm sure there are all kinds of gender fluid takes um, and it reflects, I, I, you know, the, the fact that there's just enough to kind of generate these hot takes, yeah. but not enough to disprove <laughs> right. them. And that's both the, the fascination and the frustration of Egyptian history. But I suppose what you would say is if you were trying to, I mean, you can tell she's formidable because she lasts so long in such an unprecedented yeah, and she, role. And, and, and she creates this stunning yeah, architecture. the amazing architecture. But also then the very fact of her nephew, Thutmose III's success. I mean, you said he's pretty much the greatest of all egyptian fairies so, you know he his power is unchallenged isn't it in the in the near east generally yeah i mean you could argue he's building on her well he is building her foundations isn't he he absolutely is yeah, yeah he absolutely is so very impressive woman tom i think um do you think i justified my claim for i her? think you have justified your claim actually yeah you have i think um i'm still i'm still shocked that you made that remark about incest in the first half, <laughs> that, I, I, I was alluding. I was alluding to your interest in science, I, I, not your proclivities. I, I, I just want that put absolutely I, I, on I won't the record. Lie to you. That's been on my mind the whole podcast. <laughs> oh no wonder you've been so quiet. Yeah, I know it's unprecedented. <laughs> that really is unprecedented. No, that was fascinating, Tom. It's really interesting, and um, we should do more. We and we will do more powerful women. But I think also more on Egypt. I mean, I'd love to do the pyramids at yeah, some point. The pyramid, the be, beginnings of Egypt, all that kind of stuff. That would be great fun. Very much. I'm very much up for that. So we have lots of fun things coming up, don't we? We have the, uh, the real Downton Abbey, I think is our next episode. We have the real, we have a lot of real things because we have the real Da Vinci <laughs> Code. We're going to be, um, talking about the story of the Cathars. We're going to be talking about the life and presidency of Ronald Reagan. Tom will be doing an impersonation. We are doing Columbus. We have tons of fun things. So, Tom, thank you so much for what I can only describe as a tour de force. You're too kind. And we will see you all next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.